We're going to begin this morning a new series of studies on basic Christian belief. We're doing so for two reasons. One, we all need to go back to the beginnings from time to time and remind ourselves of the foundational ideas that our faith rests upon. Then also we have a number of non-Christians, new Christians in our body, in our group, and for their sake we need to go back and remind ourselves again of what we believe. And uh, also the elders uh, for the past uh, several months have been in the process of trying to simplify our doctrinal statement. And uh, since the congregation has to vote to ratify the statement, we thought it would be good to go through it paragraph by paragraph with you and, and explain some of the things that uh, make up our basic uh, beliefs. This morning we're going to talk about God. And I'm sure you can appreciate the uh, impossibility of covering that subject in 30 minutes. J.I. Packer talks about the uh, London schoolgirl who wrote to the head of the Anglican Church in London and said, We're doing God this year in school. Please send all details. Uh, <coughs> it's uh, impractical and, in, and, in fact, impossible, really, to cover the, the topic of God in, in the brief time that we have, but we'll take a shot at it. One of the really difficult things in talking about God is to find the words. Uh, God is infinite or finite. Now, when we say God is infinite, we don't mean that simply that he knows more than we know, but he has no limits to his knowledge. There's no limit to his wisdom, no limit to his insight and understanding. And we're finite, we're limited. Furthermore, he's perfect and we're flawed. N- not only is the problem one of a divine... Uh, God and, and our human limitations, but we are somewhat subhuman because we're fallen. And we, we don't understand God. Well, words fail us. You know that in the discussions you have with your, uh, with your husband or wife. Uh, you know, you send very clear signals. You know exactly what you mean. The words mean exactly what you intend them to mean. But somehow a lot of information drops out along the way, and what she re- or he receives is something entirely different. So Human language fails us, and then you have this further problem of an infinite God and finite people, and how, how do we get, get ideas across? It's like the old story of the entomologist who heard that the anteaters were coming, and he wanted to, to warn the ant colony of imminent danger. I mean, how, how do you communicate to an ant? I guess you get down on your hands and knees and rub their antennae or something, and you have to learn their signals. And it's, it's difficult to get that information across because the ants don't understand our world. After the morning service, Malcolm Anderson told me of an analogy that, that a friend of his gave him. He said, human race is like a rock in the bottom of an ocean. And the only concept of locomotion they have is what they see around them, the clams and, uh, and the, the things that hardly move at all. And, and suddenly to this, uh, to this rock, he, he, he's, it's revealed the fact that there are ballerina who pirouette and leap about. And he sees a starfish coming over, and it's moving about three miles an hour. And he thinks, that must be what a ballerina is like. That's the limit of his understanding. And, and that's the problem. When we talk about God, our understanding of God is so small and so limited and so distorted, we don't really see him as he is. Now, there are several ways that the Bible goes about revealing God to us. I'm not going to even discuss the issue of whether or not God exists. I that, that would take us all morning. We're going to assume that he exists and talk about the revelation of God as, as we have it in Scripture. 
uh, how does God go about revealing himself to us through the prophets? Well, one way he does is by his name. Uh, in, in, in the Old Testament world, in the ancient Near East, names were important. Names meant something. You have David, for example, uh, uh, running across a, a fellow by the name of Nabal. Nabal in Hebrew means fool. And uh, the author of the book says the man was just like his name. He was a fool. So names are, are, are significant. Uh, for example, um, suppose I ask Nancy what she loves about Terry. And she says, well, it's because he's so handsome. And I say, well, uh, look at Kim. Isn't he handsome? Why don't you love Kim? And she'd say, well, no, it's because Terry is so, is so wise. And I say, well, well, what about Mark? Isn't he wise and intelligent? Well, why don't you love Mark? Say, well, he's so, he's so kindly. And I say, well, there's Paul back there. Isn't he kindly as well? Why don't you love Paul? And she said, oh, it's because he's Terry. That's why I love him. And you get the idea. See, Terry is a composite. That name signifies everything that, that the man is. And that's the way the Bible talks about God. It gives him names. One of the names, the, the best-known name for God, is, the, is his, his proper name, Yahweh, or Jehovah. And we're told in Exodus 3 how that name came about. Moses was herding sheep. He had been herding sheep for 40 years. And uh, uh, he, he saw a burning bush. And uh, we, we went over to investigate, and the bush spoke to him. And about that time, he decided he'd been herding sheep long enough. Forty years is long enough. <laughs> Bushes don't talk. But this one did because God was in the bush. And he spoke to, to Moses. He said, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground in the ancient world. Uh, if a place was considered to be uh, the dwelling place of God, you took off your shoes as a way of showing respect. So Moses comes closer to the bush, and the bush says, Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt to deliver my people. And by this time, Moses had a grand case of, of inferiority for 40 years. That'll do, you know, herding sheep for 40 years will do that to you. And he, he didn't think he was adequate for anything. And God said, I'm going to send you back to Egypt to deliver my people. And Moses says, who am I that I should deliver Israel? And God says, I'll go with you. And Moses says, who are you? And God says, I am. And that became his name. Uh, our word Yahweh or Jehovah, is, it, it's actually a verb. It comes from a verb form that, that means I am. Well, what does that signify? Well, it meant to Moses what it means to us, that God is whatever we need. Do you need wisdom? I am. Do you need strength? I am strength. Do you need love? I am love. And we go through life saying, I can't. He says, I am. And therefore we can say, I can. I can do all things through, him, through the one who strengthens me. Well, that's his name. That's significant. Uh, there are a lot of names for God in the Old Testament. El is the, sort of the generic name for God. It signifies the superhuman one. El Elyon is the God who is above all, the exalted superhuman being. He's called El Shaddai. The God who is not only strong but is compassionate. The word shad probably comes from the Hebrew word for breast. And it signifies God's love and his compassion. And 
his uh, concern for those that are weak and, and struggling and immature. And all through the Old Testament, you have one name after another that tells us something of the character of God. Well, that, that, that communicates to us. Second way God communicates to us is through his actions in history. You can see his redemptive history. Uh, see redemptive history and the way he worked out his plan in the, in the nation of Israel. And you can see God in creation, his creative handiwork. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare his glory. The firmament shows his handiwork. So we learn from, uh, about God from nature. The third way we learn about God is, is through his son, Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God is like, then read through the Gospels and see how Jesus behaved and, and, and the sort of things that he did and the attitude that he had toward people and his, his loving spirit toward those that were weak and, and fallen. Philip said to Jesus in the upper room, Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long and you've missed the whole point? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So if you want to know what God is like, just read about Jesus. The fourth way that God reveals himself to us is through analogy. Theologians are fond of using big terms, and, and they say that God's revelation in Scripture is analogical. And all they mean by that is that God reveals himself through pointing to things that are like God in, in, in the human race. God is not a man, but he's, he's pictured as a man with hands and eyes and feet. He doesn't have hands and eyes and feet, but he's, he's described that way in the Bible. By analogy, by pictures, by figures. Now, let me, let me illustrate. This is a little corny, but stick with me, okay? Close your eyes and think of a Big Mac. <laughs> Come on, really. Close your eyes and think of a Big Mac. All right, now open your eyes. Uh, now, if I had time to go around and find out what you saw, you probably all saw two meat patties, uh, <laughs> lettuce, tomatoes, special sauce on a sesame seed bun, right? Now, that's a very concrete image. Now, close your eyes and think about God. What do you picture? All right, now open your eyes. Uh, we'd get an interesting uh, composite picture of God if we went around and asked you what, uh, what you saw. Some of you would see God as a, as, a, as a loving father with a very kindly face. Some of you would see uh, God as uh, Mount St. Helen with lightning flashes. Some of you might picture God as a judge behind a, a bench or a shepherd or a physician. Or you might think in terms of some uh, natural object, material object. Uh, I, I thought of a fortress. when I, I tried that experiment on myself, and I saw this big fortress with a tower in the middle of it and a high wall and, and a sort of protective uh, environment. And that's the way God is pictured in the Old Testament. He's a brook. He's a fountain. He's a shepherd. He's a physician. He's a judge. He's a husband. Uh, he's a rock. He's a wall. He's a high tower. Now, those are all analogies. They're not perfect, but they tell us enough about God that we can understand something of his nature. And they're always distorted, but they tell us something. You know, imagine, for example, a little boy who has a father with the mind of Albert Einstein. The little boy is two years old. Now, there's no way in the world that Albert Einstein, or a person with that 
you know, that kind of mind, could communicate with his two-year-old son meaningfully about what's in, in his mind. He, he could talk about theoretical physics and, and he could make some analogies that, that might, there might be some connection, but it'd be very difficult for him to communicate. But the little boy could know that the father loved him and he could know something of his character and, and know that he was, that he was special. Now, that's the sort of thing we see in Scripture. Very perfect perceptions of God. Uh, he, he points to things in, in the human race that are very much like God. And there's always some distortion, but there's enough there so we can know God and love Him and know of His will for us. Now, I want you to turn to Isaiah 40. And I made the mistake uh, in the first service of trying to go through the whole chapter, and I... It's impossible. I'm going to start with verse 12. Isaiah 40, 12. And show you, uh, or give you an example of uh, the way Scripture reveals God analogically or by analogy. Isaiah was an 8th century B.C. prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. Prophesied during a critical time when uh, the Babylonian captivity was, uh, or the Babylonian empire was a very small empire, but they were beginning to develop, and he saw the storm clouds off to the east. He realized it was only a matter of time before Babylon would march west, and little Judah would be uh, conquered and taken into captivity. He foresaw that event, though it was uh, several hundred years after his time. And he predicts a time when Israel will return to Jerusalem without a king. And they'll be in desperate straits for a period of time, but he ministers comfort to them. Chapter 40 begins that way. Comfort. Comfort my my people, says the Lord. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Speak comfort to her. Tell her that her servitude is over. Her hard service has ended. She has received double for all of her sins. The exile is over. You can go home to Jerusalem now. And uh, God is still your God, and, and you're still my people. And the Lord is going to come to deliver. And what follows then is a picture of a king entering a city. I'll just read it and make a a comment or two on it. Verse 3, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it for the mouth of the Lord. Has spoken. In those days, uh, they didn't have super highways. When a king visited a city, the entire population of a city would turn out to level the roads and make them smooth so the chariots could make their way into the city with ease. And this is the picture he's drawing on. Except here, he's not talking about actually making a highway for God. These folks were in Jerusalem. They were waiting for the king. And uh, he's talking about moral preparation for the king. You need to get your heart straightened out. You need to be on the level spiritually, is what he's saying before the before the king can come. Now, you, you probably recognize these words because both Matthew and Mark draw upon this prophecy and apply it to John the Baptist and Jesus. John was the prophet crying in the wilderness, saying to Israel, make level, make a level road for, uh, for God. The glory of the Lord will come to you. And here in Isaiah 40, he uses the word for the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh, and applies it to Jesus in the New Testament. The, the, the deity of Christ is woven through the warp and woof of Scripture so that if you tear it out at any point, it shreds the cloth. You, you can't get away from the fact 
that the Jesus of the New Testament is the Lord God of Israel of the Old Testament. The gospel writers quote this passage to Israel and say, the king is coming. Get ready. Prepare your heart. Get on the level. Stop playing games with God. Submit to his will and then the king can come. And set up his kingdom in your hearts. Now I want you to go down to verse 12 and I want to read uh, the series of rhetorical questions that the prophet raises. And see something of the character of the one who's coming. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked out the heavens. Now that's a figure. God doesn't have hands. He's a spirit. But we all have hands. We understand hands. And when Isaiah says, who has measured the waters in his hands, he's talking about God's immensity and his power. Can you imagine someone, you know, the surface of the earth is two-thirds water. Can you imagine someone measuring every drop of water on the earth with his hands? A handful at a time? Who could do that? So God could. And who can measure the heavens with a span and just mark out the infinite recesses of space with his fingertips like that? Who could do that? God can. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales or the hills in the balance? See, those are all analogies from their experience. And they knew what he was talking about. He's not saying that God has a basket with which he goes around and weighs all the dust of the earth. But he could. That's the point. He could. Uh, uh, the theologians are, are fond of using the word omni a lot. Omni this, omni that. God is omnipresent, omni, omnipotent, omniscient, and so forth. And they would say that this passage teaches the omnipotence of God. He is all-powerful. has all the power in the universe. No one else has any power. Any power that we have is derived from him. When, when, when they say he has all power, it means he has all power. It's resonant in him. Any power we have to live and breathe and act is derived from him. He's the source of it. And when I was working with students, one of their favorite questions, and they always thought they had me, was, was to say, if God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so large that he can't lift it? That, that, that's supposed to be the unanswerable conundrum, you know, because you're, you're lost either way you answer it. If you say, yes, he could, then there's, there's something that he couldn't do. He couldn't lift the rock. If you say, no, he couldn't, then there's, again, he's not omnipotent because he couldn't make a rock that large. But see, the question's all wrong because the, the, the idea of omnipotence doesn't mean that God can do anything he wants to. It means that he can do anything consistent with his character. There are some things God cannot do. He cannot lie, for example. He cannot die. But he can do anything that's consistent with his character. All power is bound up in him and he can... It, and that means that all power is available to us to do whatever is consistent with his character. Now, Isaiah goes on. Who has understood the spirit of the Lord and instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Theologians say this teaches his omniscience. He knows everything. Isaiah wrote during the... Uh, the golden age of Greece, the great classical era, the age of Pericles. And, and he says, in effect, where did God get his information? He go down and talk to Sophocles and Pericles and, and the great men of, of Greek uh, philosophy and, and gain his information from them? No. 
No, as a matter of fact, if, if they have any truth at all, they got it from him. He's the author of all truth. He knows it all. He understands life. Now, uh, what follows in, in verse 15 on to the end of the chapter, or at least on through verse 26, is the answer to these questions. Who has measured the waters? Who has held the dust of the earth? Who has understood the spirit of the Lord? Whom did the Lord consult? Who was it that taught it? Was it the nations? Did he get this information from the politicians of his day? No, he says the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than that. He's not saying the nations are unimportant. He's just saying that in comparison to God, there's nothing. They're nothing. Why are we so afraid then of the Soviet Union or the United States or the IRS? Or any other, uh, and and nationalism can become idolatry because we invest in our nation ultimate authority. Isaiah says, it's dropping a bucket compared to God. Not pacing the floor and biting his fingernails over the arms race. He's He's not afraid that the human race is going to decimate itself because somebody pushes the trigger. He, he has all power. He's not frantic. And then Isaiah does what the prophets so often do. He, he compares God with idols, and he pokes fun at idols. So a craftsman takes a piece of wood, and he carves an idol, puts gold on it, and then he has to put feet big enough on it so it doesn't fall over. And then he falls down and worships the thing. We don't do that today, do we? Heard of a car advertised last year as something to believe in. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with cars. There's nothing wrong with selling cars. We've got a lot of car salesmen in here. But, you know, they're, they're not, you can't believe in a car, not ultimately. And yet we, we tend to invest in certain things, absolute authority, and think that somehow those things are going to give us comfort. They're going to make us happy. They're going to, they're going to give us the resources to cope with our faltering marriages or, or whatever, but they don't. God says he's greater than, than the idols and then he's greater than the rulers. In verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was, was founded? He sits enthroned upon the circle of the earth. The circle is the horizon. He's like a king sitting on the edge of the horizon, ruling the earth. Its people are like grasshoppers. Numerous, numerous, but, but powerless. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. His house, his tent, is the heavens. These are all, again, see, analogy. It's like this, because they lived in tents then. They understood, in this case, some idea of the immensity, the greatness, the majesty of God. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. All the, the great men of history... The makers and the shakers and the rulers and the powers, he says, they're brought to naught. He blows on them, and and they vanish. They wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Verse 25, to whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens who created all these. 
He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name, and because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. In those days, they worshipped the stars. They thought they were deities, astral deities. God says, no, they're they're not gods. I, I created them. Furthermore, I know them all by name. I just read this past week the lead article in, in National Geographic on uh, on the stars. Some of you may have seen it, and the billions and billions and billions of stars and galaxies out there in space. And I understand that if you want to, you could have one named uh, for yourself. Uh, the National Star Registry. If you send them thirty-five dollars, we'll name a star for you. <clears throat> it's too late. God already has them named. And he knows them all by name. We look out, you know, we're just dumbfounded when we look out at the stars. And they tell us that it just goes on and on and on and on for millions of light years. It's one star after another. God knows them all by name, and he never loses one. One never wanders off and gets lost. Keeps them all in orbit, controls them all. Tonight, uh, if you go out and look off to the east, you'll see the stars come up one by one, and they're all there. None of them gets lost. Somebody asked me after the first service, what about shooting stars? And well, you know, he's the one that directs their trajectory and trajectory. And he's responsible for all nothing's out of control. He knows their names, he knows their orbits, he controls everything. Why then do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My hard way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. That's a good question. If God knows the stars by name, does he know you? If God controls the universe, can he control the circumstances of your life? You see Isaiah's point? It's a good question. Why do we complain? It's a terrible thing to complain, but we all do it. We gripe and we groan and we cry and we moan about our circumstances and we think God doesn't know and he doesn't hear our prayers and he doesn't care. And I think I'll go out in the garden and eat worms. (laughs) Life is terrible. I have all these aches and pains and I have this terrible situation at home and my children won't obey and my husband doesn't love me and it's awful. And Isaiah says, why do you complain when you have a God like that who knows your needs and who has infinite power and it's all focused right on you? It's all available to you. Do you not know, have you not heard the Lord is the eternal God. He's not limited by time. The creator of the ends of the earth. He's not limited by space. He will not grow tired or weary. He's not limited in power. and his understanding, no one can fathom. He is unlimited in wisdom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. He does not say he necessarily changes our circumstances. He may not. But he gives us the strength to stand in our circumstances. Even youths grow tired and weary, he says, and the word he uses for youths here is the word for a hero in in Hebrew, a strong man, a heroic figure. Even even strong athletes grow tired and, and weary, and young men 
stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, those who fully believe in God's power and wait for him to fulfill his promises, those who put their roots down into God and trust him and believe him and rely upon him, will exchange their strength. That's literally the verb that he uses. The NIV says renew, but it's the word exchange. In other words, we come to God with all of our weakness and we swap it for his strength. What a deal. The God of the universe who, who, who rules, who, who sustains everything, wants to give us his strength. And all we have to do is trade in our weakness. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, I'll, I'll not only be content, I'll rejoice in my weakness. Because when I'm weak, I'm strong. Those who hope in the Lord, who rely on him, who believe him, who trust him, will exchange strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. I I like to get away from things every once in a while and just go down into Waihe County, and I love to watch those eagles catching a thermal and and soaring effortlessly. And and sometimes we, we get to soar, and people get to see us, and they say, wow, look at that, that's... That's tremendous. That's impressive. We're up front where everybody notices our strength and how effortlessly we're doing things. But sometimes we just have to run. And he says, if we run, we'll not grow weary. And sometimes you have to walk. And, And literally what Isaiah says is that you'll walk on and on and on and not faint. He's talking about those mornings when you have the blahs, when you get up and... And it, it's just another day. And there isn't anything ahead except cleaning house and mowing the lawn and taking care of the kids and washing dishes. And, and there's no glory. Nobody will notice. No one will know. And he, he says, you have strength to walk on and on and on. Ruth Bell Graham must have had a day like <clears throat> like that when she wrote this this poem, not... She says, not fears I need deliverance from today, but nothingness. Inertia, skies gray and windless, no sun, no rain, no stab of joy or pain, no strong regret, no reaching after, no tears, no laughter, no black despair, no bliss. Deliver me today from this. And then there are days like that when you just have to walk, put one foot ahead of the other, and be God's man, God's woman wherever God has called you to, to be that. And he gives strength. And it's not just a little bit of strength. It's his infinite strength. That's why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's what it means to believe in God. The, uh, the, the first creed that we have in the church is called the Apostles' Creed. Uh, not because the apostles wrote it, but because it, it's based on the teaching of the apostles. It comes from the, probably the second or third century. And the first statement of the apostles' creed is, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heavens and earth. Now, that, that's, what we, that's what we believe, basically. We believe in God, who is the almighty, the all-powerful Father, who is the creator of heavens and earth. That's, uh, first of all, the content of our faith. That's what you find in Scripture. That's what you find in the creeds, Christian creeds. And uh, most of us believe that. 
At least we give intellectual assent to it. We believe in one God who is, who is an almighty Father, who is the creator of heavens and earth. But you know what? If you brought a demon up here and interviewed him, he would believe as well. James says so. If you brought a demon up here and said, do you believe what the scripture says about God? Oh, yeah. You bet. Do you believe that there's one God? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're not a polytheist. No, no. I believe in one God. You're not a pantheist. You don't believe that God is in everything. No, no. I believe in one God. You're not an atheist? No. Oh, no. No, I, I believe in one God. Do you believe that he's almighty? Oh, oh yeah. Is he our father? Yes. Is he creator of heavens and earth? Yes. But that would still be demonic doctrine because he, he didn't really entrust himself to it. And when we say, I believe in one God, that means that we believe into one God. We put our life in his hands. We start trusting him the way Isaiah did. We start seeing him as Lord of life and resting on his adequacy for all of life. There are those nights when you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and you start thinking about the day ahead and you wonder, what in the world am I going to do? How am I going to pay those bills? What am I going to do with my kids? Where do I go? And we get overwhelmed because we feel that it all depends upon us. That's the time to remind yourself of who God is. It might help to go outside and look at the stars and note that none are missing. He has it all under his control. And then offer yourself up to him and trust yourself to the one who judges justly. There are no guarantees that our circumstances will be right, that everything will go well, that we will prosper financially or, or socially or physically. There are no guarantees in Scripture that's so. But there is one guarantee. The God of the universe in whom we believe is adequate for anything you and I have to face this week. That's what it means to believe in one God. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this, for this good reminder this morning from the book of Isaiah that you're competent, that you're reliable, that you're faithful, that you're good, that you're just, that you're compassionate, that you love us. And that the same arm that's extended in, in power and in might is the arm that encircles us, that carries us when we're too weak to walk. That, you're, that you provide for us the protection that we need, regardless of the circumstances that we face. We thank you that those demands that we encounter day after day are ultimately demands upon you. Thank you for your adequacy. Help us to believe it and rely upon you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.